Thank you for listening to the podcast of Bible Baptist Church. Please visit our website at www.southbaybbc.org for more information. Looking at this passage, Paul is really continuing his charge. In verse number one, he says, I charge thee therefore. Verse number one begins this charge. And it's really a continuation of the end of chapter number three, which is all scripture is given by inspiration of God. Because we have the word of God, Paul is charging Timothy and he's charging us as well to preach the word, give the word. What our society needs is not more social media, it's not a new politician, it's not you know, more money being thrown into the system or changes economically. What our country needs is the word of God. And what our families need is the word of God. That's what's needed in our families. For our families to read the Word of God, to hear the Word of God, to take the Word of God, to receive it, to believe it, and to apply it. If we would simply take the Word of God and use it in our family lives, we would be better for it. Families would be better for it. What we need on a personal level is the Word of God. If you're not saved, you need to be saved. You need the Word of God. The Word of God that says, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. For those of us who are believers, we need to take and receive and apply the Word of God. And he gives a little bit of an urgency. We took a look at it a couple weeks ago, but when you get into verses number 3 and 4, he's warning that there will come a time when people will no longer listen. That they will not be receptive to the Word of God. That it will not be something that is a priority to them. And in verse number 4 he says, And they shall turn away their ears from the truth, and shall be turned unto fables. Why would somebody turn away their ears from the truth? Because they just simply want what makes them feel good. And they want to hear what makes them feel good. But then he says in verse number five, but, Timothy, you live in an age, and you will continue to live in an age in which people will no longer be listening to the word of God. They may do that, but you're different from them. You're a Christian. You're a minister. You don't get your example from the world. We get our example from God. So I know that others around you are going to be doing this. I know culture and society and the world as a whole seems to be going in the opposite direction. But you're a Christian. You follow God. And he says in verse number five, he gives us several instructions furthering his charge. In verse number five, he says, but watch thou in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, make full proof of thy ministry. Here are four specific instructions followed by three reasons why. So this this passage is really structured around two main ideas, what we do and why we do it. What we do and why we do it. Both of, the, uh, both of these things are important. What you do matters. Amen? All right. You might have great intentions, but what you do matters. Right? I'm sure that we've all been in a situation where we had the intention of trying to help somebody or encourage them, but when we did so, we kind of made it worse. You ever been there? Trying to encourage somebody, and you, you came up with something, you said something, but at the end you could see that their reaction was not that great. You're like, "Uh uh-oh, did I say the wrong thing? (laughs) We had good intentions, but we didn't do good. We made the situation worse. 
And there are times when we might have good intentions but not do the right thing. So what we do matters. And why we do it matters as well. So by way of introduction, we're going to take a look at the four what's that Paul gives to us. The four things that we do, but we're going to spend the most of our time this morning looking at the why's. Because if you only have the what to do, eventually you will stop doing it. You ever been in a situation where you're told what to do, but you have no idea why you're doing it, right? You go to work and you're told to do this, but you're like, I don't know why am I doing this? This doesn't, this doesn't make sense. And you ask, you know, why, why are we doing it this way? Just do it. And you're like, oh, okay, all right. You begin to do it, but you know what that feeling is? It's like, why am I doing this? Right? Should I be doing this? It's, I, I, it doesn't make sense to me. It seems counterintuitive. You lose your motivation after a while. If you only know the what. But if you know the why, it'll help you to keep going. So we're going to see what Paul says about the what. What are we supposed to do? Or what did Paul tell Timothy to do? And we can learn lessons there. But then really we're going to spend a lot of time thinking about why are we doing these things? Answering, you know, some simple things. Why are we here today? Why do we come to the church services? Why do we read our Bibles? Why am I wearing a suit and a tie? <laughs> you know, there are all sorts of things. Why do we do some of the things that we do? And if you know why we do them and know the reasons that Paul gives to Timothy, it'll help you to think about, oh, okay, at least this is the reason why Pastor Richard does that, or why some of the church members do that, or why we as a church need to do these things. But first, let's get into the what are we supposed to do. First of all, we see that Paul says that we are to equip ourselves. Watch thou in all things. Watch thou in all things. Now, uh, it was a couple weeks ago, I think, I mentioned using this app called uh, Olive Tree. And uh, there, there's a number of different apps that you could use programs on your computer or on your phone or tablet. You could use any number of uh, different apps. I suggested one for you uh, from Olive Tree that maybe you use and uh, maybe you downloaded. Could be a good help to you. If you did, if you did purchase it, you downloaded it, if you went to this verse right here, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse number 5, and you clicked on the word watch, if you clicked on it, you would have seen, you know, these definitions and you could have found all of the words that are used in the New Testament that are that word. And if you look at them, the very first instance that you find in the Bible is in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse number 6. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse number 6, and it's also repeated in verse number 8, says, Therefore, let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. For they that sleep, sleep in the night, and they that be drunken are drunken in the night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and for an helmet the hope of salvation. So this word, watch thou in all things that we find in 2 Timothy, is the same word that's used here in this passage when it's contrasted with something. It's contrasted with the word sleep. Let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. So we see a contrast here. So if you're wondering, what does it mean to watch? Am I supposed to just be looking around? We can see in this passage, it means, ah, you know what the opposite of watching is? It's sleeping. So what God is telling us is, don't sleep. Don't fall asleep. Don't, don't uh, you know, just take it easy and not pay attention and not be ready, not be uh, doing what you're supposed to be doing. Watch, be awake. And he gives some instructions in verse number eight. 
But let us who are of the day be sober. That word sober is the same word as the word watch. So you have the word sober, be serious, be ready in your mind, be watching, be awake. What does that mean? Putting on the breastplate of faith and love and for an helmet, the hope of salvation. So the idea is if we're going to be watching, we've got to be ready. We've got to equip ourselves. And a lot of the Christian life is about equipping ourselves. One of the major reasons why we come to a church service and you would join a Life Connection class and you would attend a Sunday night or a Wednesday night service is so that you would be equipped. A big part of a lot of life is about equipping yourself for what is going to come. Soldiers in boot camp go to boot camp in order to equip themselves, be ready for the battlefield, right? They've got to get in condition. They've got to know about orders and structure and how the military works. They've got to learn how to use uh, their rifle. They've got to learn how to use certain equipment, things like that, have the right mindset. They've got to be equipped before they can be put out on the battlefield. Because you could recruit some wonderful people, but if you just throw them out there, it's going to be a disaster. So we've got to equip them before we send them out there. Athletes in the same way. They, they don't play every single day. Uh, what do they do? They, they get themselves ready. They have some practice time. They have some rest time. They work out. They do all of these things. They work together as a team so that when they get out onto the court or onto the field, they can be ready and work together. Students spend a lot of their time getting ready for the future. Kids and students might wonder, why am I going to school? Why do I have to go to school? Why I have to learn math? Why do I have to learn history? Why do I have to learn English and writing? Why do I have to learn all of these things? Well, the reason you need to learn all of these things is, one, you can be a more well-rounded person, but also one day you have to get a job, right? One day you're going to have to work and support yourself and earn money. And all of this education is with the idea of prepping you for whatever it is that you're going to do. You'll have the skills and you'll be able to say, you know what? This is what I really want to do. This is what I'm good at and I'm ready for it. Children also need preparing for adulthood. Why did God give uh, parents to children, right? Could God not have simply had our little children in eggs, and we just bury them in the sand. And we say, see you later. Hope it goes well for you, <laughs> right? But God didn't do that, right? God gives parents to children. Why? With the purpose of raising, up, raising them up and getting them ready for adulthood. So a big part of our church and why we do what we do is to equip you. That's a big part of what we do. So why do we take a look at the Bible? So that you could be equipped. Why do you have a life connection class? Why do we have kids classes? Why do we have youth classes? In order to be equipped. You can ask questions. Maybe you're single. Maybe you're young married. Maybe you got little kids. Maybe you're in a new life stage. Maybe you're wondering about your job situation. You'll have some people to be able to ask questions and be equipped for whatever is coming down the road. Preparing ourselves for our family. The young people, you're going to grow up, you're going to get married, you're going to have kids, and people ask me, what do I do? How do I do this? And a lot of the answer comes from just coming to church, 
being faithful, reading your Bible every day, learning and applying those principles, and that will help you to get ready because one day these little kids, they're going to get married. One day they're going to grow up and they're going to have kids and they've got to be ready for that, right? When you have a child, it's probably not the best time to learn how do I parent this child, right? You know, you got all of these demands and they wake up and they cry and they fuss and you're just trying to keep your head above water. Getting ready ahead of time is a good thing. Preparing ourselves for ministry, all of that. So God says that we need to equip ourselves. Get into your Bible. Be ready. Learn and apply these things. The second instruction that is given is to endure afflictions. That's what he says in verse number five. But watch down all things, endure afflictions. So, the reason why we need to be ready is because we're going into a battlefield, right? We took a look at the passage in 1 Thessalonians, right? You have faith and love and you have hope. They're described as defensive armor equipment to go out into the battlefield. And so we need to be equipped because we're going out into a fight. And we're going to have some battles in life. We're going to have some difficulties in life. And the Bible says, get yourself mentally ready to endure afflictions. When things don't go your way, when your friends make fun of you, when you lose a job, when you miss out on a promotion, and you have some difficulty that comes your way, be ready for it and determine that you will endure those afflictions. Because the very next command is to evangelize the lost. Do the work of an evangelist. So the word evangelist comes from the word, the gospel, which is the good news. So what does an evangelist do? An evangelist spreads the good news. They tell others about the gospel. Now, in a church context, many of you, if you're familiar with, uh, with you know, you come to a church and sometimes you'll have an evangelist that comes through. Sometimes the idea of an evangelist is somebody who's not a pastor, they're not, you know, kind of in one ministry, but they travel to other churches and they preach in other churches. And we kind of use that term, you have these evangelists that come around and, uh, and they preach. We might call uh, uh, Dr. Getch, we have Dr. Getch coming in every single year and he's been a big blessing, Lord willing he'll come again this coming January, uh, but some people refer to him as an evangelist, that he comes and he preaches the word and then he goes back home or he goes to another church. Uh, there's one way to think about an evangelist, but the definition itself means to give the good news, meaning this, every Christian is an evangelist. Amen? Because we can and should spread the good news. Now, the irony of that is that when you give the good news to somebody, they may not like it, right? You would assume that if you gave bad news to somebody, they would say, I don't want to hear the bad news. You would assume that if, if you said, I'm going to give you some good news, they'd be like, yeah, what's that news? Give it to me. And after they hear the good news, they'll be overjoyed to hear it. But not everybody is happy when you give them the good news of the gospel, Sometimes they reject it. Sometimes they persecute you because of it. That's why we need to be equipped and we need to endure. Because somebody out there needs the gospel. You might give the gospel to somebody and they will reject it. You might give it again to somebody and they're going to reject it. And they're going to reject you. And you've got to give it to somebody else and somebody else until eventually you give it to somebody and they trust the Lord as their Savior. Aren't you glad that you would endure through that in order to see them to be saved? 
The fourth and last instruction that is given is to finish the job. Make full proof of thy ministry. The idea there is don't just do the work of an evangelist, as important as that is, but finish the job. That's important for us as Christians to finish. Finish the job. Finish the course that you have been called to finish. Get all the way through to the end. I remember a couple of years ago, there was a Super Bowl between uh, the Patriots and Atlanta, the Falcons. And uh, sorry if you're an Atlanta fan in here, but uh, Atlanta was doing really well. I mean, really well. Like, they were blowing out the Patriots really well. It was the third quarter. They're three, you know, almost three quarters of the way through the game, and they're leading 28 to 3. I mean, it's a huge lead. They're doing really well. Everybody thought, wow, they're doing so well. But they lost the game. They couldn't finish the job. Now, they did not get three quarters of the Super Bowl trophy. They did not get three quarters of a Super Bowl ring. They didn't get one. You know why? They didn't finish the job. They didn't finish the job. That's the importance of finishing the job. For us as Christians, we've got to finish the job. Now, what does it mean to finish a job? If you were to say to an average Christian, you've got to finish your job as a Christian, you've got to finish the job as a church, what does that mean? What does it mean to finish a job? Well, we often go back to the Great Commission. The Great Commission is in Matthew chapter 28, verse number 19. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. What's the job? Go out there, teach all nations, give them the gospel, baptize them, add them into the, into the church, and teach them to observe all things. Teach them to obey the Bible. The idea is, when you get saved, you are born again, you're a baby child in the Lord. But we've got to grow. We've got to mature. That's uh, kind of the process that we call discipleship, or being a disciple, or discipling somebody. That's the idea of helping somebody who is a young child in the Lord, they're a young Christian, to grow and to mature. So that's the idea of finishing the job, because as Paul told Timothy, the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. The idea is don't just reach people with the gospel, but help them to grow and mature so that they can reach others with the gospel as well. So there's a lot of instructions that are here that are given that Paul says, all right, you got to be ready. You got to equip yourselves, be ready to endure afflictions. You got to evangelize. You got to tell people about the gospel and finish the job. Make sure that you don't just say, all right, you're saved and leave them at the door. Get them into the church. Get them into a discipleship program. Get them into a relationship with you so that you can help them to do all of these things. Now, for us as a church, we've been doing all of these things. Right? Or at least we've been going out, we've been telling people about the gospel in your hands or in your Bible. You have an invitation to our Christmas Sunday. We do that every single year 
On the back are some verses there from the Bible. You can lead somebody to the Lord through those verses. We have all of these things. We have a discipleship program here. We have life connection classes. We have all of those things here. And so I would assume that if you've been here to our church for a while, you would have already known all of these things. That you got to be ready. That you should be faithful. That you should witness to somebody. That you should be in the process of discipling somebody. Finishing the job. But today we really want to get into not just what do we do or what should we do, but why should we do them? Why should I equip myself? Who likes to fight? Who likes to get bloodied? Who likes to get hurt out in battle? Isn't it easier just to sit at home and let somebody else do that? Who wants to go through afflictions? I'd rather just quit. I'd rather just not go through any of that. I'll just go when it's easy. Take the easy road. Why should I evangelize? Why should I tell them somebody else can do that? Oh, they got access to the internet. Why should I be involved in this discipleship process of seeing somebody to be saved and helping them to grow in the Lord? Why should I do all of these things? This is the important question. So Paul gives a couple of reasons why he told Timothy you need to do these things. Because in verse number six, he begins with the word for. You do these things because. That's what that word means, because. So we're going to take a look at three whys for what we do what we do. We do what we do to accomplish a great purpose. Verse number six says this, for I'm now ready to be offered. Christians do what they do because they're trying to accomplish something important. We do important work here. Amen? Amen. As Christians, we do important work. This is vital work that we are involved in. This is not extraneous work that if we lost our church and we lost the Bible and we lost these relationships that we have, that it would just be like, okay, that's too bad, but I can just keep going and living my life and everything will be fine. No, we do important work here at the church. There's a famous story about Steve Jobs, who, as you know, ran Apple, started Apple, hiring John Scully to be CEO of Apple. This goes way back in the day. If you're a younger person, you might not even know about this story. But Steve Jobs, of course, started Apple. He eventually got kicked out of Apple, and he started a company called Pixar. He was involved in this company, Pixar. And so eventually he started Pixar, got sold off or whatever, started another company, got bought back by Apple and became CEO of Apple again. It's kind of a wild story. But part of that story begins with Steve Jobs is a young guy. He's very smart, very brilliant, creating these amazing technologies, but he's never run a company before. He's young, doesn't have any experience, never went to business school, didn't do any of these things. And so as the company began to grow, everybody was like, oh, man, Steve, you're great. I mean, you're really great at what you do, but you've never built a big company. Maybe what our company needs, because we're kind of, you know, struggling a little bit. Maybe what we need is we need a, an experienced CEO who knows what they're doing. And so the target was John Scully. John Scully was the CEO of PepsiCo. All right, so Pepsi, as you know, they make soda, they make the snacks, they do all of these things. Anyway, Steve Jobs had a conversation with John Scully. They began to have this conversation, and apparently, 
John Scully was not totally convinced that he should go and work with Steve Jobs at Apple. Steve famously used this line. He said, do you want to sell sugar water for the rest of your life or come with me and change the world? Wow, <laughs> what a line, right? Do you want to just sell sugar water to the rest of the world or you want to change the world? Now, was he right in Apple computers changing the world? I mean, how many of us have iPhones today, right? How many of us have an iPad? How many of us have a Mac computer? How many of us had an iPod back in the day? Remember those things? Remember that? All right, how many of us had this technology? And it really did change so much of the world. And the line that he used was, do you want to sell sugar water for the rest of your life or come with me and change the world? Basically, what Jobs was telling Scully is, I'm doing important work here. You want to work on important things or you just want to go sell some sugar water? We at Bible Baptist Church do important work. We do life-changing work. We do eternity-changing work. Now, you don't always see the effect of it right away. You don't always see that people receive the gospel right away. You don't always see that lives are changed the, the, immediately the moment that they walk in the door. Suddenly you can see that they're a totally different person. That doesn't always happen. But nevertheless, the work that we do is important, vital work. That's why we do what we do. We do what we do because evangelizing the lost is important work. We do what we do because discipling others is important work. We get ready for these battles and we go through these battles and we endure through these battles. Friends may leave. Things may happen at the church. Other people may offend me. But we've got to be ready to endure because the work that we do is important. And he phrases it in verse number six, for I am now ready to be offered. I am ready to be offered. Paul was ready to go if this was how it's going to end. He did not live those last few moments of his life in regret. How do we die without regret? We all have regrets in life. If I were to ask you about the most embarrassing moment in your life, you could probably think about it right now. You could probably think about that moment when you just felt so embarrassed to be there, to have said that, to have done that, to have everybody staring at you, or whatever the case might be. We all, we all have regrets, things that we did that we regret doing it, and we remember it to this day. We, things that we said, and we regret it. We regret saying that thing. I can't believe I said that. I don't know why I said that. And now, you know, that this relationship has been really damaged and all of these different things. We have regrets for decisions that we've made or regrets over things that we knew we should have done, but we didn't do them. We couldn't really put ourselves out there and take the risk and, and uh, uh, really do what we knew to be right, even though there might have come some consequences. We're all going to have these, these kinds of regrets, little regrets. But how can we live a life where we look back without regrets because Paul died without regrets. Paul was rich and wealthy and powerful and had all of this access to resources. He had everything ahead of him and he died a poor man. 
in prison, not popular at all. People didn't like him. People didn't respect him. People didn't listen to him. People wanted him dead. And yet he lived without any regrets. How could he possibly do that? Because he knew that the work that he was doing was important. That's why. He spent the last years of his life after he got saved doing important work. And if that meant that he was going to lose some money, he was okay with that. If that meant that his reputation would be damaged, he was okay with that. Even if that meant that he would be beaten and whipped and thrown into jail, he was okay with that because he knew that he was doing important work, that he had finished the job. That's what he says in verse number seven. I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. He said, I have fought a good fight. I got ready for battle. I fought for the Lord. I fought for the church. I fought for lost souls. I have fought a good fight. These are things worth fighting for. Fighting for the word of God and fighting for the church and fighting for a friend who may have strayed off and, and gone his own way. It's worth fighting for them. And Paul was fighting for them. And that's why he knew that what he was doing was important work. He also had a course that needed to be finished. I have finished my course. He had a role in, li in, in life and he knew that it was his role. Every one of us as Christians has a role. You have a job and you have a responsibility. Paul knew very clearly what his responsibility was. He states it in Acts chapter 13, verse number 47. For so the Lord hath commanded us, Paul is there with Barnabas, saying, I have set thee to be a light of the Gentiles, that thou shouldest be for salvation unto the ends of the earth. See, the, the church is described as a body. We're a body together. If you're saved, you're baptized, you're a member of Bible Baptist Church, you're a member of the body. And just like your body has different parts in different places to do different jobs, every Christian is in a different place with different abilities to do different jobs. And every one of us will do well when we know what is my role and to do that role. See, we can live our lives and die without any regrets if we know this is why God put me here in Bible Baptist Church. This is why I am here. This is why I work at this company. This is why I live in this community because I know my role here to witness to these people, to witness to my friends, to witness to my relatives and family members. I know that my role here is to help other Christians to grow in the faith. I know my role. They say that in great teams, these very successful dynasty type teams become the way that they are because everybody knows their role. The superstar knows his role. The support player knows his role. The guy whose job is to just play defense and do a really good job there, he knows his role. Sometimes there's a guy that's called the glue guy, right? So what is a glue guy? He's the guy that just keeps everybody together. A lot of these great teams have glue guys. Sometimes they're not even people who really even get out onto the court very much. They don't even play that much, but they're the guy that's in the locker room that makes sure everybody's together, helps everybody to, you know, have good relationships. He might invite the whole team over to his house to have dinner. They'll go do things together. He'll schedule things together. If there's beef between one guy and another guy, he makes sure that they get that right so that they could stay on track.
back. And sometimes there's a glue guy that, that nobody even knows about, but he's very important in his role. He may not get paid as much as a superstar. He might not get the stats of some of the other players, but his role in creating a successful team is just as important as everybody else. If you know your purpose and your goal. This is, my, this is my purpose here. My purpose here is just to make sure everybody sticks together. Hey, let's let these little problem situations go and let's stay focused on the Lord. I was reading a book recently about uh, Disney and Disneyland, when Disneyland got created, and uh, the philosophy of Disneyland and going to Disneyland. If you ever go to Disneyland and uh, you're there and you ask any employee, you could ask anybody at Disneyland, where is the restroom? They will help you. You could ask anybody at Disneyland a question and they'll try to help you do what they can. Now, you go to some other place and they'll say, uh, I don't know, hey, hey uh, Bob, can you go, go help them or whatever, or do this? And I, I don't know where it is. Uh, I, maybe, maybe it's over there or somewhere, you know? But Disneyland has a very specific purpose and goal and they train their people to be helpful. They train their people. Let's give everybody a good experience. And that's their goal. Their, goal, their job might be to sweep you know, the trash that falls on, on the sidewalk, but their goal is to give everybody a good experience. And if Disneyland employees know their role, we as Christians should surely know our role as well. Sometimes it's very clear. You get a calling from God. All right. This is your role. Your, your job is to be the pastor. Your job is to be the Sunday school teacher. Your job is to do this. Sometimes it comes from somebody in the church. God will move in a fellow Christian to say, hey, why don't we go out soul winning on Saturday? Hey, why, why don't you join me in, a, in this Sunday school class? Why don't you join me in the Life Connections class? Hey, why don't, we, why don't we get together and have some coffee? Why don't we study the Bible together? Paul knew his role and he was able to do what he did because he knew, this is why God put me here. Because there's a faith to be kept. That's what he says. I have fought a good fight, I have kept my course, and I have kept the faith. We as Christians do what we do to accomplish a great purpose. We as Christians do what we do to succeed great people. In verse number six, he continues, I'm now ready to be offered, and the time of my departure is at hand. The reason why we do what we do and we need to keep doing what we are doing is because Christians are retiring. Christians retire from the ministry. Now, we ought not to retire while we are here, right? While we are here, we are still being employed by the Lord, <laughs> all right? You ever see those people who you could tell they're mailing it in because they're at the very end and they're like, well, I'm going to get paid anyway, so all right, you know, and they just take it easy, they come late, you know, what, what is the company going to do? Are they going to fire me? Of course, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to retire, you know. But while we are here, we are still employed by the Lord. We still have a role, a job, a responsibility. So when we say that Christians are retiring, what we're saying is that God takes them home, that they retire to heaven. We retire officially when we pass away. What Paul is saying here is, I think I might be retiring soon. He said in other of his letters, I'd rather not retire. I know that there's still a work for me to do. I do want to retire. 
right? Those of you that look forward to retirement, right? <laughs> I would love to retire. I'm looking forward to retirement. Maybe you're right there. You're almost there, about to be retired. All right, I'm looking forward to retirement. But for us as Christians, retiring means uh, you've got to pass away first. <laughs> and Paul said, well, I, I'd rather stay here, but if I get to go to heaven, I'm perfectly happy with that. And Paul is telling Timothy, you have to do what I'm telling you to do. You have to equip yourself. You have to endure inflictions. You have to tell people about the gospel. You have to finish a job because I'm leaving soon. I won't be here that much longer. I'm going to retire soon. And because I'm going to retire soon, you've got to continue. You've got to do the job because somebody has to keep doing it. Amen? Amen. Somebody's got to do it. Somebody has to tell the lost that there's a Savior that loves them. Somebody has to tell them that they are in sin. Somebody has to tell them there are consequences to sin. Somebody has to tell them that God will judge them. And if they are still in their sins, that they will be cast into hell, into the lake of fire. But there is a God who loves them. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Somebody has to tell them that. Somebody has to tell them that. Who's supposed to tell them that? It's got to be us. One day we'll all retire. One day all of us will be retired. We'll get to be in heaven. We'll be with the Lord. We'll be in our glorified body. And when we're there, it'll be somebody else's role and responsibility to tell people the gospel. But we're still here. Amen? Amen. All right. I'm glad you're here. <laughs> I hope that you're glad that I'm here. And we're glad for each other. This is our role and responsibility. Elijah, if you read in the Old Testament, was a great prophet of God, took a bold stand for God. He was going to be leaving soon, and everybody knew it. I don't know how exactly everybody knew it, but maybe God told Elijah and Elijah told everybody else. But everybody knew God's going to take Elijah soon. And Elijah had... Uh, uh, a mentee. He was mentoring Elisha. And Elisha determined that he was going to go with him. And so he went. And Elijah said, why don't you just stay here? He said, no, I'm going with you. He said, okay, fine, come with me. And all of the other people said, why are you following Elijah? Don't you know God's going to take him? Why don't you just stay here? He said, no, I'm following Elijah. So he went from city to city to city. And maybe Elijah was just kind of cleaning up all the loose ends, tying everything up and, and you know, getting ready to go. Finally, they go across the Jordan River, right? takes his mantle, Elijah takes off his mantle, his outer coat, wraps it up, and he smites the river. He smites the water. He hits the water, and the waters part. So Elijah and Elisha, they walk across on dry ground. The water comes back, and they continue walking off into the distance. They keep going, and Elijah asks him the question, all right, so you keep following me. What do you want? Why are you here? <laughs> Elisha says, I want a double portion of your spirit. Elijah says, oh, that's pretty tough, but okay, here's, here's how you're going to get the double portion of my spirit. God's going to take me up. If you see me go up, you will get a double portion of my spirit. Elijah says, all right. So you can imagine him. He's like holding his arm, <laughs> you know, and just staring at him the whole way, you know? And they keep walking and walking and walking. God sends a chariot of fire down, appears, and comes right in between them, and it parts them. 
Elijah and Elisha, maybe they're, you know, he's holding on to him. This chariot of fire comes and Elisha's like, whoa! And Elijah's on the other side. Elijah is taken up in a whirlwind. And Elisha watches him go. Elijah's gone. Elijah's mantle, though, falls to the ground. And Elisha picks it up. And he walks back to the river. And he asks a very simple question. Where is the Lord God of Elijah? He takes the same mantle. He wraps it in the same way. And he smites the water in the same way. And guess what happens? It parts. Just like it did for Elijah. It went back across on dry ground. Elijah was gone. Things have changed. Things are different. But you know what's the same? God was still there. God was still there. The God that parted the waters for Elijah parted the waters for Elisha. We're talking about some great individuals here. We're talking about the Apostle Paul. Maybe you have a great uh, man or woman of God that led you to the Lord or discipled you or you really looked up to, you heard their preaching, you followed them, and, and you kind of grew a lot because of them. And Maybe you're looking at them now, they passed away, they're not here anymore, and you might say, oh, they're gone, your Elijah is gone. The question that you and I need to ask is, where is the Lord God of Elijah? You know what God's going to answer? I'm still here. I'm still here. See, Elijah was here, and I parted the waters for him. I could part the waters for you as well. So we do what we do, because God is still here, and to succeed these great people. Thirdly, we do what we do to receive a great promise. Verse number eight. Henceforth, because I have fought a good fight, because I have finished my course, because I have kept the faith, because I have done these things, henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but, also, but, unto, all them that, all, but unto all them also that love his appearing. We do what we do to receive a great promise. Because there are promises in the Bible. One of the promises that is here is that Jesus is coming again. Jesus is coming back. When Jesus was on earth before, he was the Passover lamb. He was a sacrifice. When Jesus comes again, he's not going to come as a lamb. He's going to come as a lion. He's not going to come meek and mild. He's going to come as the ruler. He's going to come as the king of kings and as the Lord of lords. He's not going to come as a servant. He's going to come as a conqueror. Which leads us to this question. When you think about the return of Jesus, how do you feel? How do you feel about the return of the Lord Jesus? Are you excited? Are you looking forward to it? I can't wait till Jesus comes again. Or is this something that you would regret? Oh, I hope he doesn't come today. I, I, I hope he doesn't come for a long time. I got some other things that I want to do. Or is it something that you barely even think about? Maybe you don't even think about, oh, Jesus is coming again. You need to think about it. When I was a kid, uh, you know, I, I have two siblings. There's three of us. And uh, so my dad, he would go and work. And my mom had to take care of all of us. And there was a lot of things to take care of. 
you know, we were homeschooled for a while. We took piano lessons, soccer. I went to orchestra and violin lessons, and my brother did the same. My sister had all these different things. We had all sorts of things. I mean, we were, we, so my poor mom is just trying to keep everything together, get everybody to the right place at the right time, and all of these different things. And so every once in a while, uh, my mom, she would say to me, all right, I got to go and do this. I got to pick up your brother or run some errands or different things like this. All right, I need you to help me out with some things. I need you to help me out. I want you to clean up this and that. I want you to vacuum uh, the floor. Okay, just vacuum the floor before I come back. Okay, mom. She would leave. Now, when you're a kid, when you're younger, and your mom tells you, you need to do this, I'll be gone for a couple of hours. You know what you think? If she's gone for three hours, I probably have two and a half hours where I could just do whatever I wanted and then maybe vacuum in the last 30 minutes, right? So that's what I did. I would just play, hang out, you know, I'd probably watch TV or play video games and, you know, whatever things that I probably wasn't supposed to do at the time anyway. Playing video games. The worst sound in the world was a car door slamming shut the worst sound in the world. Because, you know, when you're a child, you learn to recognize the exact sound of your mom's car when the door closes. You know exactly how it sounds because it's the exact same every single time. You hear it every single day. So you know right away, oh no, that's mom's door, isn't it? And there's a part of your mind that hopes, maybe it's not mom's door. <laughs> maybe my neighbor had a friend come by and they just happened to have the same car as us. Well, if my mom was like buying groceries or whatever, she would slide open that, you know, the sliding door of the minivan. Well, if you have three kids and you're driving this minivan like 150,000 miles and that door's opening and closing, opening and closing, you know, it doesn't run smooth. You know, it kind of, you know, has this, you know, it kind of is kind of janky as it kind of opens up. You learn to recognize that janky sound as it opens. My mom would open that sliding door and close it. I'm like, oh, that's definitely mom. She told me to vacuum. She's going to immediately know I didn't vacuum. Because when you vacuum, the floor has those lines, right? You got the lines on the carpet. You know exactly whether things, you know exactly where the, it's not like I could fake it. It's not like I could just pull out the vacuum real quick and see, I'm vacuuming, you know? There's a big difference when we do what we're supposed to do and when we're not doing what we're supposed to do when Jesus comes again. We do what we do because Jesus is coming back. And we don't want to be caught in that situation. We do what we do because Jesus is coming back as the judge, which the Lord the righteous judge shall give me at that day and not to me only. Jesus will judge all the saints differently from the lost. The lost will stand before the great white throne judgment. You will be judged whether you trusted Christ as your Savior or not. That's the judgment. Not whether you came to church, not whether you gave money, not whether you're a good person. You will be judged whether you trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior or not because we are all sinners. We are born as sinners, we have committed sins, we have gone our own way. If you are saved, you stand before a different judgment seat, the judgment seat of Christ. The judgment seat of Christ, you are not judged whether you are saved. If you stand at that judgment seat, you are there because you are saved. If you stand there, you will know, I'm saved. I'm here in this, this judgment seat. 
What Jesus will do at that judgment seat is give out rewards. He will give out rewards. That's why Paul said, henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness. We do what we do because Jesus is coming with rewards. And we earn those rewards now. We do what we do. We evangelize the lost. We are faithful to God. We serve in our church. We read our Bibles. We grow in the Lord. We mentor people. We give tithes and offerings. We do all of these things because Jesus is coming again. Now, I'm sure that all of you know the what's of Christian living, being faithful to your church, serving, witnessing, all of these things. But let's make sure we've got the why down, that we're, we, we've got those firmly in our minds, that we do what we do because Jesus is coming again, that we do what we do because others have passed away and will continue to pass away, and somebody's got to take that mantle, take the baton, and run the next leg of the race. And also because we've got a great purpose. We do important things here at our church. We help people to be equipped for the Christian life. We help marriages. We help parents. We help the lost to hear the gospel so that they would be saved. We help so that Christians would grow in faith so that they could reach others with the gospel as well.